0: Bangladesh, officially known as the People's Republic of Bangladesh, is a small South Asian country that is basically surrounded by India from the west to the north and to the east. A tiny part of it borders Myanmar in the southeast, and to the south it borders the Bay of Bengal. Size-wise, it is about 50,000 square miles, and population as of recent is around 166 million That's quite a small piece of land for that many people, and if that doesn't register, let's compare it to the USA. The US is about 66 times the size of Bangladesh, while the population is only about double the population of Bangladesh. This clearly makes Bangladesh one of the most densely populated countries in the world. The capital city is Dhaka, which is kind of located right in the center of the country. And the second main city is Chittagong, also the largest seaport in Bangladesh. This country is home to the largest delta in the world, the Bengal Delta. There is also an abundance of rivers flowing through Bangladesh thanks to the Himalayas, and many of these rivers also go through India and Myanmar. All this water in Bangladesh just means that their land is incredibly fertile and can grow a large variety of plants, crops, you name it. The official language is Bengali, and ethnic group-wise, about 98% identify as Bengali. Religion-wise, Islam is regarded as the main religion, with over 90% of the population following Islam. The second largest religion is Hinduism, and then a small portion of people identify as Christians and Buddhists. The word Bengal could have various origins, but it seems it is commonly associated with the word Vanga, which was the name of an ancient kingdom located in the south of Bangladesh. Note that a big part of Bangladesh's history is heavily intertwined with India and Pakistan, so it will be a little difficult to only hear about their history, as this country is relatively new. There will be times I'm going to refer to Bangladesh as present-day Bangladesh because this country was not yet in existence back then, and was generally a part of what we know of as India. You will hear more about it in a minute. So, ancient history stuff. The existence of human activities can supposedly be traced back thousands of years, but since there is very little historical evidence left behind, one can only guess. The first people could have arrived in present-day Bangladesh from the north, presumably from China. Some say there is evidence of the Stone Age and the Copper Age being present in that area, so that would date back approximately 20,000 years. At least. Some say 100,000, some say 60,000. It's really not definitive. Settlers in present-day Bangladesh began cultivating rice and growing crops around 3,000 years ago and they would be recorded as one of the earliest ones in history to do so. Settlers in the Bengali region were also very advanced when it came to their lifestyle, including developments in weaponry and irrigation. Not only were they very quote-unquote modern during those times, they had also begun to trade with other civilizations, including ancient Rome, Java, Sumatra, etc. Basically, the region was quite well developed and was living ahead of its time. Let's jump forward a bit though because there's too much information. The first major empire in the area was the Mauryan Empire between 320-180 BCE, which was under the rule of Ashoka. This was also around the time when Buddhism was introduced to the area. A few other empires came and went, and one that stood out would be the Pala dynasty. This was a Buddhist empire, and the empire was said to have a quote, stable government, security, and prosperity. Quote. Next up, we have the Sena's empire, defeating the Palas around the year eleven fifty. The Sena's empire was said to have been a huge reason why Islam became so widely accepted in the area. They apparently had very strong ideas about religion, especially suppressing Buddhism and their staunch support for Brahmanism, which is a belief of supernatural power that controls destiny. Islam had been around since the 6th or 7th century, but it didn't become widely popular till around the 12th century. Around the 14th century, the Bengal Sultanate was formed, and the whole Bengal area was said to have been a quote, cosmopolitan Islamic superpower, end quote. often trading with other areas around the world. Up until now, Bengal and India were still tied together, but in the year 1341, Bengal gained some independence from Delhi, and the city of Dhaka rose up. Then came the Mughal Empire, ruling from around 1526 to 1857. This rule came with a lot of conflict and struggles. A lot of destruction and violence was said to have taken place as they were heavily opposed, as in massacres, looting, basically a lot of violence from all sides. Despite all that, the Mughal Empire, under the rule of Akbar the Great, tried to connect Bengal and India together by building connecting roads and including Bengal in its postal service. The empire saw Bengal as a rich area full of resources, and including it in certain aspects of the empire was mostly for selfish reasons. Bengal was still sort of isolated from the rest of India, and it was used as a resource center for everyone else. When outside forces arrived at Bengal and invaded the area and took people as slaves, the empire didn't really seem to care much. Regardless, Bengal continued to fight and flourish on its own, and after the last Mughal emperor died, Bengal pretty much became its own independent state. Now, on to the colonization part. Like I always say, no historic account is complete without some sort of European colonization. The French, the Portuguese all had their fair share of colonizing, but let's focus on the British. As we know, the British East India Company began taking over India and nearby areas starting from the mid-1700s. As the Mughal Empire began to die off, the British presence became even stronger. Bengal was one of the first places that got taken over, and once they fell under direct rule, all trade, production, and even land tax were then controlled by the British. It was obviously a very unfair situation to be in, it's not really a surprise that the British would be looking out for their own interest, but they also can't stop people from feeling fed up and frustrated. The British were basically draining all their resources and imposing a ridiculous land tax on them. Famine also hit Bengal at one point, and many people died. So as you can imagine, it wasn't hard to get people to rise up and fight back. Nationalist resistance began to really show around the early 1900s, And soon after, we got both world wars going on. After the Second World War, the British were finally ready to say goodbye to their colonized territories. But before leaving, they had to decide on what to do with India, Pakistan, and Bengal. Due to a religion divide, India and Pakistan separated from each other, one being more Hindu and one being more Muslim. But what about Bengal? Instead of merging with India or letting it become its own country, it became part of Pakistan. So now you have West Pakistan, as in present-day Pakistan, and East Pakistan, present-day Bangladesh. This separation is mostly strange because these two places are not connected to each other at all, geographically speaking. A huge chunk of India divides them, which I would assume would make ruling a country extremely difficult. There was a lot of tension between the two Pakistans, and eventually East Pakistan was able to break off and declare itself independent in the year 1971. It officially became Bangladesh. But that came at a cost. The liberation war of Bangladesh against West Pakistan resulted in millions of people killed, with over 200,000 women killed, raped, or tortured. India had to step in and finally, under their combined powers, Pakistan was defeated. Despite Bangladesh finally becoming its own country, they still had lots of obstacles they needed to overcome eventually. As it is in the case with newer governments and countries, a lot of people would try to take power and defeat their opponents in whatever way possible. Various military coups were attempted during the late 70s and 80s, which included the assassination and removal of a secular government led by Sheikh Mujibur Rahman in 1975. Bangladesh also experienced a famine in 1974, which left over 1 million people dead. A few interesting facts about Bangladesh, though. Did you know that they have the longest uninterrupted natural sea beach in the world? It's called Cox's Bazaar, and it has a total length of 155 kilometers, or 96 miles. Of course, it's not all sunshine and white sand there. While some parts are beautiful, there is also a part where it's basically a ship graveyard. Something that may surprise you is that Bangladesh has one of the longest female-led governments. Since its independence in 1971 to now, 2021, About 25 of those 50 years were led by female leaders. The current prime minister has been in office since 2009 and is currently on her third term. I know many of you probably think Bangladesh is a poverty-stricken country, and while it was struggling at one point in history, its poverty line has decreased dramatically over the years. They may be behind many countries in rebuilding and growing, but they are catching up. You also have to consider how much of their resources were drained by other countries and how new the country is. Another fact that I found quite amusing was that Bangladesh is the country with the second lowest obesity rates. Who was number one? Vietnam. It's not that they don't have food or anything, or that they only eat vegetables. There's actually a lot of fried foods and carbs incorporated into their daily diets. It's the whole lifestyle and physical labor work that keeps them from packing on the weight. Oh, and Bangladesh is also home to many Rohingya refugees, if you recall from my previous episode on the Rohingya genocide. Hopefully this abbreviated background on Bangladesh was interesting and not too overwhelming. It was definitely difficult to research because of its rich history and its ties to India. So, on to today's topic. This case reminds me a lot of episode 26, the murder of Yamin Rashid. Someone who wanted to use their voice to address things that they were passionate about, wanted to bring awareness to certain issues, and challenge the current situation. Is that so wrong? I know many cultures or groups of people view certain topics very differently from what many of us are used to. For example, some cultures may condemn those that don't follow a specific religion, while some others believe everyone should worship whatever they want. Some view women as less deserving of work and should just focus on cooking and raising babies, while others praise women for pursuing their dream career. This man, Avijit Roy, enjoyed speaking his mind and bringing attention to things he was passionate about. Did he deserve to die because of this? I highly doubt it. Let's begin. Before I start, I have to apologize because I do not speak Bengali, obviously, and so forgive me if I screw up a lot of these pronunciations. So, Avijit Roy, a Bangladeshi American man, was born to a Hindu family on September 12, 1972, in Bangladesh. Not that much personal or childhood information can be found about him, but here is what I could find. Roy's father, Ajoy Roy, was a human rights activist and a freethinker. He taught physics at the University of Dhaka and was extremely passionate about humanism, which is the philosophy that values human reasons and human ethics, directly opposes religion, superstition, and supernatural dogma. It's quite an interesting concept and I was a bit surprised to learn about this, since we already know how Bangladesh is considered quite religious. If you look at Wikipedia's page on the list of importance of religion by country, Bangladesh is actually one of the top ones. In other words, it might be strange finding someone who isn't religious there. Maybe because of his father's passion, personal beliefs, and upbringing, Avijit Roy attended the Bangladesh University of Engineering and Technology as a young man, majoring in mechanical engineering. He then continued his pursuit in biomedical engineering at the National University of Singapore. I would assume this sort of degree would be able to land him a job nearly anywhere in the world, and that would prove true in the early 2000s when he moved to Atlanta, Georgia, to pursue a job as a software engineer. He had also gotten married to his wife, Rafida Ahmed, and the two had a daughter together, though some sources state that she is the stepdaughter. Also, I will be referring to him as Roy from here on out. Let's discuss Roy's passions, interests, and views. Similar to his father, he also considered himself an atheist and rejected anything that touched on supernatural concepts specifically in religion. He was a busy man. Not only did he spend a lot of his time studying, obtaining degrees, and working, he was also an activist, a writer, and eventually became a blogger for his blog called Muktamona, which translates to Freethinkers. He began this blog journey in the early 2000s, initially creating a Yahoo group for his ideas, back when Yahoo groups were still a thing. Eventually, it moved on from a group to an actual blog. If you look for it online, you will find that this blog is still running and updated quite frequently. There are many submissions from the editors, other journalists, and of course, Avijit Roy himself back when he was still alive. So what exactly was this blog about? A lot of it reflected his personal beliefs and probably ended up attracting people with similar ideologies and sort of gave them a way to discuss and express themselves in a safe space, meaning the internet. I went through a few pages of the posts, and here are some blog posts that can best describe what they focus on. In one titled, When Prayers Can Kill, the writer states, quote, How reckless a government has to become to leave one of the most important decisions of one of the most severe public health crises humanity is ever to encounter, in the mercy of the Islamist zealots who have no ties with science, public health, or medicine. End quote. Another one titled, To Mark Zuckerberg quote, I wish to highlight the fact that Facebook has been knowingly or unknowingly deactivating accounts of numerous atheists, ex Muslims, and freethinkers in Bangladesh. It is conceivable that a similar situation exists in other Muslim majority countries. End quote. One post that I personally really like states the following, quote, We also say the remedy of religious fanaticism is not more religion, especially not the institutional religion, but rather the remedy is the creation of open minds that accept various ways of living that do not harm each other. Let parents allow their children to grow up in an environment so that they can choose their own path based on knowledge, logic, and and humanity. Spirituality does not come from blind faith. It comes from in-depth understanding of this universe. End quote. Of course, the blogs weren't filled with only atheist and anti-religion sentiments. There were many posts remembering Broy, posts discussing general health and diet, human rights, culture, and politics. It's definitely interesting to see things from another group's perspective. So now that you have a better idea of who Avijit Roy was and the kind of work he was devoted to, let's cut to the chase and talk about his murder. Roy had published several books as well as running his Freethinkers blog, and of course, that kind of puts him on the radar. Some of his most popular books include The Philosophy of Disbelief and The Virus of Faith. Prior to his death, it was known that Roy would constantly receive death threats from religious extremists, and fundamentalists. Some came to him directly on Facebook, some were less direct, as in threatening the publisher and the places that sold his books. Roy himself stated once that, quote, the death threats started flowing to my email inbox on a regular basis, issued death threats to me through numerous Facebook statuses, end quote. It's one thing if you're an individual who browses taboo websites and reads taboo books. But him actually putting his thoughts and ideas out there and publishing books about it will certainly get him some hate. One threat allegedly stated that a Vijay Roy lives in America, so it is not possible to kill him now, but he will be murdered when he gets back. End quote. As you know, Roy had been living in the U.S. since the early 2000s. Around the same time, he began his blog. I don't know if he felt any sort of fear but I would definitely be pretty shook up and would probably avoid traveling back to Bangladesh. But I highly doubt he was the type of person to back down on threats. He's not hurting anyone. The internet is a place to express yourself, and he isn't even forcing people to follow his ideologies. In a sense, we see this as one of the situations where you're not doing anything wrong, so no need to be scared, right? Haters gonna hate? but history has repeatedly shown us that religion is and has always been something people fought about or even killed for. Whatever your beliefs may be, is it really necessary to destroy those who don't share those similar beliefs? In February of 2015, Roy and his wife, Rafida Ahmed, flew back to Bangladesh for a visit. During their visit, they decided to head to the annual book fair in the capital city of Dhaka. Since Roy was an author, it's only natural that he would participate in book fairs. The day was February 26, and everything was normal until they left. As the couple were leaving the book fair that evening at around 8.30pm, walking along the student-teacher center of Dhaka University, a group of men showed up and began to attack the couple, first dragging them off and then using their machete hacking the couple multiple times over and over. This was pretty horrifying, not just in the whole violence part, but it was a rather crowded area and with lots of security and civilians. These men seemed like they knew what they were doing, were not at all worried about the police and the crowd, and were very determined to get their job done. It was rather clear that their target was Roy, but since his wife was with him, she was bound to get caught up in it as well. She tried to help him fight off their attackers, but since they had the upper hand in, well, from the element of surprise to having weapons, she was unable to fight them off. Everything at the scene was a bloody mess, and when the men felt like their job was done, they dropped their weapons and ran off, leaving the bloodied couple by the side of the street. Roy was lying on the sidewalk in a large pool of his and his wife's blood while his wife was still conscious and screaming for help. At times like these, I wonder if it's expected that the crowd should step in or try and help, but considering the fact that these assailants were wielding machetes, I don't blame them for not trying to help. They would probably just end up injured or worse. On the other hand, it was a book fair so there was a fair amount of security personnel and police officers nearby. Somehow, none of them made an attempt to stop the assailants or try to intervene. A photographer who was there at the book fair immediately took action and made sure the couple got to the nearest hospital. Roy, who was 42 years old, was pronounced dead at 10.30pm. Cause of death, pretty obvious I'd say, as he had received three deep gashes to his head. His wife Rafida was somewhat luckier, although she had suffered a deep head wound and lost a finger. Her condition was stable and she managed to survive the attack. I imagine losing a loved one is a horrible experience, and it was extra horrible for Roy's father to have to take up the responsibility of filing for a murder case and, of course, having to live with the fact that his child was hacked by multiple machetes and probably suffered a lot during the attack. Here are some questions we probably already kind of know the answers to. Who would do something like this? Why would they do this? Days after the murder of Roy, an Islamic jihadi organization from Bangladesh, the Ansar Bangla team, aka Ansar al-Islam, or ABT, claimed responsibility for killing Roy on, of all places, Twitter Twitter. Not because they were remorseful, but because they wanted to take credit for ridding the world of another freethinker and atheist who opposed their religion. Here's a bit of info on the group known as the ABT. They are basically a Bangladesh-based terrorist group that truly enjoy attacking bloggers who do not follow and speak out against religion slash Islam. It is rumored that they are somehow linked with Al-Qaeda which I assume isn't entirely shocking or unbelievable. They use Facebook groups to coordinate a lot of their attacks and to locate new targets. Not sure if that shit is still running, but if you ever do come across one, you definitely should report the crap out of it. So, this organization seemed to be semi-legal at the time of Roy's murder and the years before that, where they also claimed responsibility for the killing of several other bloggers. This group was officially banned, though, in May of 2015, after they were implicated in a bank heist. The way that was worded makes it seem like governments value financial loss way more than human lives, but I may be wrong. Anyway, the police began to look into all the threats that Roy received throughout the years, hoping to find someone who actually could have done it. About a week after the attack, they landed on a radical Islamist named Farabi Shafur Rahman, as he had repeatedly threatened Roy's life on social media, and I assume he was also the guy who told Roy that he would die if he ever set foot in Bangladesh. Not a great look, I assume. It was obvious that multiple people were involved in the murder of Roy, as there were at least two perpetrators, and then there is all the info gathering and planning. Their main goal was to continue searching for those who could have been involved. The FBI also offered to assist in this investigation, maybe because Roy had dual citizenship, or maybe because this involved terrorist organizations. The police and the FBI would return to the crime scene and take any sort of video footage of the area they could find. Many witnesses came forward and gave them accounts of what they saw, and something they seemed to agree upon was the lack of action from security and police nearby. So although this was a book fair, there were police booths set up in many areas, maybe just in case of pickpocketing or people attacking each other with books or something. Many witnesses, including Roy's own wife, stated that during the entire attack, police were within earshot, but no one came to help. They just existed. I know it's a dangerous situation, blah blah blah, but come on, aren't you supposed to be keeping the peace? This makes you wonder, if the witnesses are in fact correct, could the police themselves have been in on it? Were they maybe extremist sympathizers? Could they have been paid off to look the other way? Or were they just really lazy and oblivious? The police eventually zeroed in on a few other potential suspects, including a man named Tohidur Rahman. The police stated that this man was very likely the brain behind the murder of Roy and another murdered blogger. So they finally had their suspects in custody. Now what? Four men were officially charged and arrested for the murder and attack on Roy and his wife, and they all belonged to the same extremist organization, ABT. Two other men were still at large, but considered guilty and on the run. The trial first began around August 2019, four plus years after the attack. No idea why it would take this long, but I assume the justice system does move a bit slow in certain countries. In the initial trial, ten witnesses shared their accounts and testimonies. The trial was set to continue a few months later in March of 2020 but due to witnesses being absent it was then rescheduled to February of 2021 I also wonder if covid had anything to do with that but but I digress either way it took literally 6 years for these six men to go on trial and receive their sentences during those 6 years Roy's wife was never approached by the police for whatever reason I mean, it sounds kind of strange, right? Considering she was one of the victims and was also literally right next to her husband when he was killed? According to her, no one reached out to her to ask her questions. Despite the police having arrested six men who were thought to be involved, this was not good enough for Rafida. Quote, "...simply prosecuting a few foot soldiers and ignoring the rise and roots of extremism does not mean justice." For Avi's death, end quote. And I tend to agree. These organizations are dangerous, and the people in it are probably considered expendable. A few get arrested or die, no problem. These men knew what they signed up for, and when they have faith as strong as the extremists, dying is part of the job and glory. More men will join anyway, no big deal. So back to the trial. February of 2021, all six men were found insanely guilty. One received a life sentence, and the other five death. Remember though, two of the six men, Sayed Zaul Hake and Akram Hossein, were not in custody, so the sentence they received is kind of uh, empty? Pointless. They could still be in hiding, or could be living a new life elsewhere. Who knows? The court stated that, quote, charges against them were proved beyond any doubt. The court gave them the highest punishment. End quote. Of course, the defense team for these six men are now planning to appeal their sentences. Let's talk a bit about the public's reaction. Days after Roy's death, groups of people, many of them students, took to the streets holding candlelight vigils and protesting the brutal murder of an innocent. Free thinker. A lot of people saw the death of Roy as a collapse in censorship on free speech, which is kind of true. It makes speaking your mind and having different opinions a dangerous thing to do, especially when it comes to religion. Many organizations and leaders around the world also mourned the death of Roy, and one source described him as, quote, an eloquent defender of reason, science, and free expression. In a country where those values have been under heavy attack. The blog site Muktomona also posted a message in solidarity We are grieving, but we shall overcome. In case you thought this was an independent case of one man being targeted, well, here's the deal Roy was not the first free thinking blogger to get killed over his writings and ideas. Taslima Nazreen was a Bangladeshi-Swedish woman who was also targeted for her free thinking. She was a feminist, an activist, and opposed of religious extremism. She had to leave Bangladesh in 1994 after getting exiled for her work. She's also written many books, and not only were some of her books banned, she was also blacklisted. In February of 2013, a man by the name of Ahmed Rajib Haider who was an atheist blogger, was attacked as he was leaving his house. His body was so badly mutilated that it was hard for his friends and family to recognize who it was. Asif Mohudin, another atheist and human rights activist, was attacked right outside his home. Fortunately, he survived upon investigation. The men who attacked both him and Ahmed Rajib Haider belonged to ABT the same organization who claimed responsibility for killing Roy. Even after Roy's death in May of 2015, another atheist blogger, Ananta Bijoy Das, who actually wrote for Roy's blog Muktamona, was killed in a similar manner, hacked to death as he was leaving his home to go to work. Another attack that may not be as relevant to bloggers and atheism took place in July of 2016 where five armed men stormed into a coffee shop in Dhaka, firing assault rifles at everyone in sight. This coffee shop was very popular amongst expats, and out of the 22 people killed, nine were Italian, seven were Japanese, one was American, and one was Indian. This attack was carried out by another Islamic extremist group, though, not ABT. I would assume this expat location was attacked because of how extremists maybe saw the West or outsiders in other words they did not share their ideologies so it made sense to them to kill them so these are just a few examples and there are definitely more as you can see attacks on activists feminists atheists has been an ongoing issue in bangladesh it's also interesting to note that a lot of the men that join these militant groups are young affluent educated some are still even in university. It's not necessarily people who have nothing to lose who choose to join these groups, but also people who have everything to lose. Their money, their status, and their youth. So there you have it. The atrocious murder committed on a person who just wanted to think freely and help those around him see things in a different light. Sure, sure, he was a fan of secularism, and was not a fan of religious extremism. But was that a good reason to kill him? Prior to Roy returning to Bangladesh, a lot of his friends showed concern, worried that something might happen. I'm sure Roy himself knew the risks, but what would be the point of living life if he had to hide like this? Maybe some of you are religious, and I myself grew up religious as well, but I would never imagine wanting to kill someone over them not agreeing with my beliefs. Also, Roy was not necessarily against religion itself, but rather religion extremism. Just because you're religious, it does not mean you're an extremist. Let's get that straight. Roy was also quoted as saying quote, For me, religious extremism is like a highly contagious virus. Faith based terrorisms are nothing but viruses. If allowed to spread, they will wreak havoc on society in epidemic proportions. End quote do you agree with his way of thinking? Or do you think he went too far? Or do you think his killing was justified? Another interesting thought. While most of us are probably supporters of free speech, how far should one go? Do you think he went too far? I mean, regardless of how far he went, he shouldn't have been murdered for it, right? Killing is rarely the answer. Hopefully, I did an okay job covering this case, and I would highly encourage you to do more digging if you are interested in learning more about the oppression on Freethinkers. Thank you for your patience, and this was a hard case to look into for sure. Please note, it really doesn't matter to me if you're religious or not. I am not here to condemn religion, but I am here to condemn those that cause harm onto others because of religion. Please be safe and be kind with your words, actions, and thoughts. The world needs more of it. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.